Delving into Dance with Andrew Westall. Throwing open the curtain on those who have made dance part of their life. Conversations about why they love it, how they do it, and what got them there in the first place. Program notes and links at delvingintodance.com. seem alien for those that are on the outside, because how can a practice based so heavily in movement be translated into words? Welcome to episode 3 of Delving Into Dance. In this episode, I ask these questions and more with one of the world's most eminent dance critics, Deborah Jowett. Based in New York, Jowett wrote for The Village Voice for over 40 years her work helping to capture the rich diversity of dance from classical, modern and world dance while tracking the changes within the landscape. Jowett continues to write about dance on her blog DebraJowett.com. Her style of reviewing forming its own type of literature, helping to translate what's happening on the stage to those that are off it. In her most recent book, Jowett wrote about the life of Jerome Robbins. I spoke to Jowett in April when she was an invited guest of Dance House Melbourne as part of the Kia Choreographic Award. In awe of Jowett, I struggled at times to get the words out. We talked about everything from her review writing, her book on Jerome Robbins, the changing face of New York, the changes in dance across the years, Pina Bausch, AIDS, and everything else in between. I started by asking Jowett, where did the passion come from? Where did it all start? Well, I grew up in Los Angeles, California, and like many little girls, I took ballet classes, and they were all right. Um, I, I didn't see myself becoming a ballet dancer. I, was, I became much more interested in theater. I was going to be an actor. And one summer, I took a class at a small downtown theater that had a summer program, which you had acting class and uh, uh, various a speech class, I think, and, and a class called Body Work, which was modern dance in disguise. And so I took the class, and it was taught by Harriet Ann Gray, who had been a dancer in the Humphrey Weidman Company, which was a very famous pioneering U.S. company, and she, um, she, a letter turned out that she and her husband got a commission for every student they got to go to this summer camp in Colorado, <laughs> a camp that for, for the, the arts that still exists, Perry Mansfield in Steamboat Springs, Colorado, and so I got a partial scholarship, uh, washing dishes and stuff like that and took her classes, which were now labeled as dance. And it really, they really fit my body. There, there was a lot of, of breathing into a balance instead of perching on it. So you would breathe into a balance and fall out of it and rise again and fall. And, um, you know, I'm tall. I'm all, I was pretty, pretty tall then. I was in high school. I was five foot, eight and a half, whatever that is. And, meters and centimeters, and uh, it felt good to my body. And uh, eventually she asked me to join her company, 
and a company moved to New York, and I moved to New York to dance in it. And then that's what I did. So what age were you when you moved to New York? I was, uh, I must have been a, not quite 20, well, about 20. Wow. Or 21. And you've been in New York since? Yes. Wow, the changes in New York must be incredible. So your your passion for dance translates into your writing, and I think that's one thing that I'm so attracted to is your, your reviews kind of capture that essence or that experience of dance that I've never had personally. Mm-hmm. And I, I can read a review and kind of get a sense of what it might even be like to be dancing in that or the, the description of the movement is so precise. Mm-hmm. That must come as a result of dancing and experiencing that, I imagine. I, you know, I've never stopped because it's, it's not that easy to analyze your own impulses. Yes, I have, uh, I have movement. I, I, re- I remember going to a woman, I, I had some back problem and she was a masseuse. And she was the kind who sat, sits on the table with you and creates. And she was working. She said, this body likes to move while I was lying inert on the table. And it's true, I, I was a, oh, I was sort of a tomboy as a child. I, I didn't sit and play with dolls much. I climbed trees, I, I walked on the rooftops of unfinished buildings, <laughs> things like that. And so maybe that's true. Maybe I have a, a, a kinesthetic sense. And when I first began to write, I was also dancing and choreographing. I find dance is often put into boxes, contemporary or classical Mm -hmm. or modern or, Mm -hmm. you know, the difference between modern and contemporary, some people will try and claim there's different, you know, like this, there seems to be so much trying to put everything into a box or binary and uh, get a sense that that's not something you like to do. No, I I prefer not and actually I'm, kind of impatient with myself right now because I haven't seen enough non-Western dance things recently or as near as, say, as flamenco. And there was a time when New York uh, imported for temporary performances companies from China, Japan, or at least Taiwan, Australia, uh, you could... uh, one of those programs at the Asia Society is no longer really sponsoring performance. And there was a season at the Brooklyn Academy of Music that had people from Iran and many places. And I got very interested in seeing those things. And I, I had studied a little Indian dance along the way. Beautiful. Mm. So precise. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, do you ever get sick of going to see dance? Do you ever, you know, another performance is coming up and you're standing in the foyer going, oh, I could really be doing a night at home or like, does that ever... Well, sort of, but not not really. There are nights when I'm tired and right now I'm trying to write a, a book and my husband is saying to me, you know, you write, you do too much review, you too, you're not even being paid for it anymore. But I think reviewing something is compared with the kind of book I'm writing now, which draws material here and there and pulls in, looks through this file, reads that book. Um, Whereas when I go directly from, well, not directly, but from a performance 
to writing about it. Everything else goes out out of the way. Um, except for the fact that when I used to write on a typewriter and carry my pages to the village voice and give them to the editor and sit down and hear what she or he had to say, go home and wait till it appeared in the paper with a nice photograph. Now I can get very waylaid because I'm seeing, I'm writing about a particular dance, it was to a particular score, and oh yes, let me Google Beethoven's, <laughs> and then I sit back and I listen, oh nice, oh whoops. <laughs> so you, you, can, you, know, you, can, you can get lost looking up the provenance of the poem that you heard recited on stage or the music that accompanied it. Um, How long does it take you to write a review? Good question. Um, I know how long it used to take me because I had deadlines when I was for the voice. Um, I don't know. I, some of what I write is very long. You know, you can mm. get a little crazy blogging. Some of and, the blogs that uh, you can tell when the work has so much vibrancy or so much to say because it's a much longer post. But I would say, you know, for three or so hours, and then in addition, I have to locate the photographs uh, and shrink them to fit and put them all in, and that, so that takes longer. But it, it should be about a half a day, of, you know, from 10 to 1 or or something. Yeah. So it's quite a yeah. insane. Cons- it can be shorter if I'm writing 800 words. Uh, of, course, of course, if you're writing to length, uh, I, I used to write a lot for the Times and I've written a couple of pieces recently. They tell you 600 words. You know, it's got it's got to be that. So if you go on, you have an additional time to spend paring it down to size. Sometimes it's really hard to stay under a short word limit, I find. Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes it's easy to write a thousand words, but then to pair it back to, you know, 600. Well, I would never, well, not, I can't say never, a thousand to 600 is a lot. But I got very good when I discovered I didn't have to take out whole thoughts or whole paragraphs. I could start by taking out words, and I would write in the margin minus three, minus five, minus ten. And I would get, you know, 80 words out of this page. And that before I did that before I started brutally butchering what I'd written. <laughs> Turning dance, which is so movement-based as opposed to most spoken word theatre, um, into words is an interesting process in itself. And I feel that your reviews, as I said before, like I get a sense of what that event is. But I recently saw Nelka and Pina Bausch over in Adelaide. Mm-hmm. It was over here and afterwards, not before, but I started looking at all the different reviews from New York or from all the different places in the world that it's been performed. And, you know, it was made in 1982. And so over the time, every place it's performed, there's a different context, there's a different, you know, um, environment in which a different politics, a different all that kind of stuff, and I'm really interested in how dance kind of moves across borders Mm -hmm. and the different Mm -hmm. things it could say, Mm -hmm. and also how a review captures a particular moment in time. don't know what the question is, but (laughs) it's... um, I don't either. (laughs) Yeah, but I guess, you know, when you're writing, you're writing from 
a work that's, you know, maybe in New York or... And then maybe if it came to Australia, it would be um, interpreted very differently. Of course. And I wonder if that's something that comes across when you're writing or you think about um, in terms of that context. I don't, you know, because if I thought... There are a lot of things you could think about and if you start going crazy about them, you wouldn't get anything done. Mm-hmm. Right now, I have a d- different problem because for various reasons, I'm writing about what I see here, not for my own blog, but for perusal by, I'm not sure, I have to find out. But in other words, I'm writing as a visitor, seeing Melbourne or Australia dance, and I feel quite uncomfortable about it because as I listen to the critics in the workshop, I see how much they know that I don't know about background and where this one came from and where this one was influenced by. So I'm writing from a very different perspective about these. When I'm on my home turf, I know them. Now if a visitor a visitor comes, uh, then I will... It's, a, it's, it's seeing that company in, in my, my perspective... Mm-hmm. They come from, say, from from Wuppertal. Um, but it, it's very interesting, the initial reaction to Pina Bausch's work in New York, because the audiences went crazy. And some of the critics were extremely negative about that. So depressing, so, you know, 1950s angst, and on like that. And there were sort of debates held and people making speeches. Uh, it's almost as if we had to grow into what Bausch was, was doing. Mm. And then um, eventually uh, she became something on which we became more or less expert. That is, we knew Bausch's oeuvre, we could talk about it and, and so on. So there, there are all sorts of adjustments between borders mm. and uh, were I to write about Aboriginal dance here that would be different perspective and I have written about it mm. uh, there's a lot I don't know about it and I've read reviews in which the critic is constantly excusing himself or herself mm. for not really understanding the cultural t- traditions and being sort of pussyfooting around for fear of offending somebody. But there was some controversy I think um I don't know what year it was, but when Bangara toured, and I think it was in New York, mm-hmm. and the ochre and the powder and um, somebody, I think, compared it to anthrax. or It, 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 wasn't, read, it wasn't read in that context mm-hmm. um, the same as it would be read in yes. Australia. Well, Bangara, I seem to remember, took some heat for the way it, it blended modern dance with traditional. There was something like that operating at that time. Mm. And of course, Indigenous dance in Australia is so diverse anyway, mm-hmm. given that it's not a homogenous mm-hmm. culture. There's, there's hundreds of cultures, mm-hmm. over 200 different distinct yes. cultures. So, you know, to, to make a hybrid, yeah, it's, it's, it's really tricky. And I did see there, there was a group of Aboriginal dancers who came to New York who were amazing. They were taken by bus to the Battery Park landfill where the World Trade Centers were to be built. And they did a quick performance with flashing cameras and newsmen all around and it was like another world what I they would do two minute 
dances. That that was it. This was. Uh, I remember there was one in which they threw a log around, and it was something about a baby. And I went, "Wow, I better figure this out." And then the Los Angeles Festival uh, that Peter Sellers organized in I forget what year. It was a feast of seeing original dances, Polynesian dances, Indian dances,、uh, Javanese, Balinese,、um, and there was an Aboriginal group that came. I don't, I can't, I almost know where they came from, but not, not for sure. A, a particular group from Australia. Yeah.、Uh-huh. In terms of New York and the different influences that we've touched upon. How has the landscape over your time watching the dance world and being immersed in it? How has it shifted and changed? Well, it, 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 the, when I really when I first came to New York, modern dance was very operated on a very a, a kind of schedule that did not really promote creative development. Somehow, it was traditional then that. Choreographer presented one concert a year, one performance only at the one or two approved venues for that in New York, and the rest of the year taught or did something else and worked on the dance. That excluded, say, Martha Graham, who also toured and who had a week in a Broadway theater, but most. You know, and you think, how did they improve? How did they grow? And then somehow, in the '60s, with the advent of radical groups like Judson Dance Theater, people didn't choreographers didn't necessarily want want to perform in on a proscenium stage, and they wanted to perform often, and they wanted to throw away old work and make new work. Uh, they wanted to dance in churches. They wanted to, you know, and it. Not that they made any more money or were any more secure, but they could create more work during the year and possibly show it more often、mm. in New York elsewhere. Then later, and none of them, not, almost none of those people went to Europe, and and almost no small companies or. Independent choreographers came to New York. All of a sudden, there was a transatlantic thing. So you have a choreographer now who regularly performs in Belarus, or it's hard to trace. It's hard to trace an influence, but there's there's certainly a kind of cross cultural dialogue. And yet, I don't I don't know. I don't I I don't know. I only know one 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 thing. I remember hearing that. Somebody, more than one person, thoughtful choreographer said, "Pina Bausch gave us permission to consider narrative again,、uh, but nobody made dances that looked like Pina Bausch. Whereas in Europe, there were com- companies by former Bausch dancers that looked very Bauschian,、mm. um, because that was a period in which most of the emphasis." Through Morris Cunningham's influence and Johnson had been dances about movement and form were not telling stories, and then the really narrative began to creep back in, but in different ways—not linear narrative, birth to death, but more narrative elements.、Mm. And you could see that change. 
I read an article the other day that really got me thinking and it was based on how the arts ecology could be quite different if AIDS didn't hit in the 80s and how that shifted, um, you know, we, there was a generation of particularly gay men, of, of gay men, right. not only gay men, but... You know, it was awful. I mean, people were dropping dead all over the place. And um, so that there weren't... I can't trying to think if there were any overtly political pieces made at that time. But there certainly were inquiries into love, and sex, and gender, and, you know, I can remember when there weren't, there weren't any such thing as, do, as, a, as a love duet between two men. There wasn't, and then all of a sudden, there was. Um, mm. It's the same, there are little changes that are so interesting to me. For a long time on stage, say, Women d didn't touch each other. Men didn't touch each other unless, say, they're holding hands to dance in a circle. Mm. But, uh, but the kind of uh, sort of more intimate body contact, such as possibly came out of contact improvisation, that was okay for people to embrace and and be, be close to another body, mm. beside being two antagonists battling it out uh, or that kind or lovers, but just comfortable with their bodies, comfortable about touching other people. So do you think there's more fluidity now in terms of gender and sexuality within dance? Oh, I think so. I think so. Probably not so much in classical. Not so much in ballet, but you would, I, I, I remember one of the sort of classical, the classic things you could do is you have three couples on stage performing the same movements, but you have a male-female couple, a female-female couple, and a male couple, male-male couple, uh, as if to say, Mark Morris was very forward in that, and he did dance in a dress, and he did um, have a dance that either the men or the women could perform, and they both, if it was the female cast, they dressed just like the men, no tops, black trunks, mm. uh, and he was playful about, you know, he wasn't seriously dedicated. But have you seen any videos of his uh, Nutcracker? Mm. With all the, you know, it's like dancers on point, dancers, barefoot dancers, yeah, really male dancers, mess it female up. dancers, just mix it up. Uh, and uh, the opening couple is one man and one woman, both on point. Yeah. yeah. How was that received? Oh, yes, everybody loved it. Yeah. Uh, and two of the roles were drag roles, the Mrs. Stahlbaum, and also the the hilarious maid uh, on, on her black point shoes, African American skinny rail man, man in point shoes, being the family maid. Yeah, I've only seen clips of it. I have to try and see the whole thing. It sounds yes. incredible. Yeah, um, I'm interested in gender in terms of dance leadership because quite often I know it's been written about a lot in the UK and in Europe and a little bit in Australia. The main funded companies in Australia, the top five funded companies, are all run by men, and predominantly male choreographers are programmed in their season. Not always, but predominantly. And then the next tier down, you see more female choreographers. Is that similar in New York? Is that a no? I I don't think so. Well, the big ballet companies are run by men, uh, or 
I, th I think Martine Van Hamel assists her husband at, at, a at ABT. Those are our two major ballet companies. And the New York City Ballet has been very remiss in, in programming works by female choreographers. But um, it was interesting that the uh, ballet companies traditionally used to be headed by men, of course, in the 19th century. But then all the radical modern you know, people that came along, Mary Vigman, Isadora Duncan, Martha Graham, Charles Weidman fit in there somewhere, but Doris Humphrey, Helen Tamiris, on and on and on, Agnes DeMille, the company heads were women. Mm. And they were also their own leading dancers, or mostly. Then their next generation was the men again. Alvin Ailey, Alvin Nikolai, um, uh, uh, Paul Taylor, uh, Merce Cunningham, and so on. But there were always women choreographers as well as men. And now it's pretty pretty mixed mm. uh, at least you know the younger choreographers uh, I, I'm not sure that I've counted the ratio of men to women but I would say it's fairly equal yeah and last time I was in New York cultural diversity in terms of the different bodies and different sizes mm -hmm. different color you know like there was a real diversity in the scene that I really noticed mm -hmm. um, much more now but um, because not only um, racial differences, cultural differences, size differences, uh, but uh, there are dances uh, co companies, not many, who work with disabled, disabled populations or older populations. And are they getting the same amount of... Um are they making their mark, I guess, or is that yes, in, sure. in the fringe? Sure. Yes, they're making their mark in, in various ways. Uh, there was a big dan dance um, dance and disability conference in New York recently that I was a part of. Never saw so many angry people in wheelchairs and, and with different problems. One, interestingly, uh, Heidi Latsky, who was a dancer in Bill T. Jones's company and a choreographer with Heidi Latsky Company, mm -hmm. One of his arms functioned in a strange way. Yeah. He had to always be straight, or uh, another had not, no 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 working legs. And but how these were, or 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 no one of the dancers had no just had no arm on one side. Yeah. Okay. So how she choreographed for them. It um, beautiful. It was. It was quite quite amazing. DV8 did a lot of that stuff. DV8 and, 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 and the company called Codansco, Codansco in England. I don't know if it still exists. They had able-bodied and disabled people too. Yeah. So. Um, what what else is in the pipeline? I mean, you <laughs> said you're working on a book. You're writing a lot of reviews. Your husband's sick of the reviews. <laughs> <laughs> well, he's sick of. Um, I mean, he's worried that I won't finish the book before I die or something, or, or lose my mind. Um, I just actually um, finally ended my association with New York University. That is, I came in at the request of a department head, a male department head, who said, you know, our graduate students are, are uh, restless because they don't have any classes that are just for them. 
they are they're taking ballet according to how good they are with the undergraduates or why don't you just come in once a week and kind of sit around and oh you'll manage so and so I started something called the graduate seminar which at first really was pretty lame we did sit around me on a chair there on the floor eating their lunch <laughs> you know and it developed into a course with readings and papers and that sort of thing. So I started teaching this graduate seminar in something like 1975. And, and, uh, and then I started making a, choreographing a piece each year for the students. And then in 19, I had been teaching dance history in the performance studies department or various courses related to that. They made me full-time, so then I did the graduate seminar and in the dance department, and that was two semesters, and then dance history and world cultures, which I created. Um, so then I was full-time from 1990 to 2001, and then I was an adjunct, gave up the history, kept the seminar, kept the choreography, and kept the uh, advice to what's called the Second Avenue Dance Company, the last year students. So the last thing I had was two, you know, four Mondays in the fall, twice, and four Mondays in the spring to talk to the second, to see the Second Avenue Dance Company's work as it progressed. Mm. So in March or so, I finally taught, you know, led my last that and left. <laughs> um, so I don't teach there anymore unless I substitute for the person who took over my classes. So how's that feel to be free? Well, a little strange. I, I thought I would really miss it, and I do, but missing that contact with young minds, that was, that was great. I also had access to cat feeders, which was useful. I'll give you $10 and I'm going away for the weekend to <laughs> feed my cat. Um, yeah, I miss that contact. And, in, of course, in making a dance, I was also in contact with the, you know, the movement aspect and creating it and mm. directing it and hands-on body stuff. So, yeah, so I, I miss that. Uh-huh. But it was time. It was time to go. Uh, and so what's the book you're writing? It's about Martha Graham, <laughs> which is sort of strange. I, was, I, I had gotten very interested in Graham, and then I had this offer I couldn't refuse. Uh, Jerome Robbins' estate wanted somebody to write his after his death. Uh, unfortunately, or maybe not, they... <laughs> they gave two writers the right to do this, to have access to all his papers. And it was a huge labor, but it was not hard because uh, he kept everything. So there were these huge boxes like this, and it would just say West Side Story movie, and then there'd be another that would say West Side Story stage, and in that were every bit of communication between Link, you know, Leonard Bernstein and Stephen Sondheim, and you know, everything was there. Whereas with Graham, everything's scattered. She burned a lot of letters. <laughs> a zillion people have written about her. So I sort of shelved that and perhaps foolishly came back to it, um, thinking I 
would not write about her later years when she was, or I would sum those up, but then I would go into more detail about her early development. So I've, I've written about 10 chapters and I'm only up to 1938. Wow. <laughs> Maybe this is going to be an encyclopedia. <laughs> well, I just got to get on with it. <laughs> well, thank you so much for taking the time to You're talk. You're welcome. And uh, it's been a pleasure. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Delving Into Dance with Deborah Jowett. If you would like some more information or links to Deborah's work, they can be found at delvingintodance.com. You can follow Delving Into Dance on Twitter at Delving Dance. You can subscribe at iTunes and leave a review. And you can share this episode with a friend if you've enjoyed it. Stay tuned for next week. We'll be interviewing Raphael Bonacella, the Artistic Director of Sydney Dance Company. Thank you for listening. <laughs>